good morning. Uh, you guys made it out on Time Change Sunday. You did all right? How of you think this is the 9.30 service, okay? We'll have people walking in all the way until about probably, uh, probably about 1 o'clock today. But I'm glad you guys came. Hey, I want to welcome those of you who are joining us right now uh, at an off-site campus or the warehouse or the chapel or maybe online. We're glad that you came too. Guys, ever wonder when I welcome online, uh, the online uh, service, if anybody really is out there? Uh, I asked them today to show a graphic. There's uh, something that shows up when you're online. Can you put that on the screen? This, this kind of gives, that this currently is where people are watching from. These are clusters of people in various places literally all over the world. We want to welcome you guys being a part. Okay, so, so there was an old preacher who was dying, and he sent a message for his banker and his lawyer, both were church members, uh, to come to his house. And so when they arrived, uh, they were ushered up to his bedroom, and as they entered the room, the preacher held out his hands and motioned for them to sit on each side of the bed. The preacher grasped their hands, sighed contentedly, and just kind of looked up toward the ceiling. For a, for a time, nobody said anything. Uh, but both the banker and the lawyer, they were, they were touched and flattered that the old preacher would ask them to be with him during their final moments, but he was also, or they were also puzzled because the preacher had never given them any indication that he, that he liked either one of them. In fact, they both remembered his many long and uncomfortable sermons about greed and covetousness that made them squirm in their seats. So finally the banker asked and said, Preacher, why did you ask the two of us to be here during this time? The old preacher said weakly, Jesus died between two thieves. And that's how I'd like to go also. <laughs> okay, so... This weekend, I'm going to do a message on greed, okay? It's always real uncomfortable when you do a message like that, but it's the next part of the text. And I just wanted to let you off the hook. This is not applicable to anybody in here, okay? Nobody at the campuses. This is all about friends that we have, okay? How many of you have friends who are just a little bit greedy? Anybody? Anybody got a friend that maybe is a businessman or or maybe a brother-in-law, or a banker, or whatever, or politician, and they're just greedy, and you wish they would have been here today. Here's your deal. Take good notes, because this one's for your friends, okay? You're off the hook today. Does that make sense? But it's real important, because um, if, if you don't get this right, greed will suck all of the joy and excitement um, and peace out of your life. And so you might want to write that down for your friend. And so what we're going to do is we're going to talk just a little bit about greed in the context of making room. We're in a series called uh, Make Room uh, where the premise is you can't make God move in your life, but you can make room for God to move. And we're in make room groups right now. I hope you guys are enjoying those. I hope you're eating some good food together, sharing some good fellowship. And uh, let me just kind of bring you up to speed. On the weekend, uh, we're going through 2 Kings chapter 4 and 5, and we're, we're dealing with a story there. Let me just kind of bring you up to date with what's been going on. 
story of a wealthy couple um, from the city of Shunem uh, and their interaction with the man of God who's a prophet. His name is Elisha. Uh, the, the, the woman of the household happens to meet Elisha. He's coming through town and she wants to spend some time with her husband and, and he because maybe he's closer to God. Maybe he can teach them. Maybe there's there's just a lot of things that she wants, she wants to be around where God is. So she invites him to her home for a meal. Um, goes well, apparently. They have several meals. Every time he comes through town, he has a meal with them. They develop a relationship. Over time, uh, she and her husband build a room on their house so that he can rest when he's uh, in town. And uh, just things go well. Uh, and then the prophet wants to repay her kindness and finds out that she and her husband... Uh, are unable to have kids, a little bit of a sore spot with her. He prophetically speaks into their life. They have a, a child a year later. Things go well for several years until the child, uh, something happens to him uh, while he's out working with his father, uh, and he dies. And the prophet comes back to the home and actually prays uh, for the child, and the child is healed. It's an amazing thing. Now, right after the miracle, and that's kind of where we left off uh, with this story, but right after the miracle, uh, the very next verse, it says that there was a famine in the land. Now, what's interesting about famines is that oftentimes God uses a famine uh, as, a, as a symbol of a, a time to be tested and to learn to trust him. And that certainly is the case, especially with the man of God, Elisha, especially with his servant, whose name is Gehazi. Uh, what happens next in the story is uh, during this famine, a, a, a farmer brings a first fruit offering to Elisha. What that means is that God required that uh, the, the Israelites, that uh, all first fruits were to come to God. It was a sign of God's ownership. It was a sign that God was their God. And so um, anything that came first, the, the first part of a pay, the first fruit of the harvest, if you, your first child had, you had to bring to God, which would have been real handy, especially if they weren't sleeping through the night, that type of thing. You just say, here, man of God, you deal with that. But actually, there was a provision that you could, uh, instead of actually giving the first fruit, you could redeem it. But it cost you something to, to understand that God was first place. And so during the famine, this guy brought a first fruit offering. It was small because there was a famine. But he brought it, and it was like a few bags of grain and 20 loaves of bread. And then Elisha, the man of God, turns to his servant, Gehazi, and he says, I want you to feed our posse. And apparently their posse had about 100 people in it. And Gehazi says, I can't do that. I mean, that's impossible. It's just 20 loaves of bread and just a little bit of grain. And Elisha says, watch God work. Watch God work. You can do it. So he began to pass out the food, and similar to when Jesus fed the 5,000, it just kept going and kept going and kept going until everybody was fed, and the Bible says there, there was plenty left over at the end. And again, it was God proving himself that if you'll trust him, if you'll do what's right, that God will provide it. He'll take what you have and multiply it. So lesson, lesson learned. Um, chapter 5. A man named Naaman comes into the story. Naaman is a, um, he's a commander in an army. It's not the Israeli army. It's a, another army. 
but apparently has a close relationship with the king. He's very good at what he does. They're a wealthy people. But Naaman has leprosy. And so um, the king hears about Elisha, who works miracles, and he sends uh, Naaman to Elisha so that Elisha can pray for him and perhaps he can be healed. Now he sends along with him an offering. It's a pretty big offering. It's like 750 pounds of silver, 350 pounds of gold. How many of you know how much gold goes for, uh, for, for an ounce right now? Anybody have any idea? I think it's $1,600 an ounce. And so how many ounces are there in a pound? 16, so you multiply 1,600 times 16, and then multiply that by 350, and I'll do the math for you. With the silver, it's about $4 million. I'm a man of God. If you come bring an offering of $4 million, I will pray for you, okay? I mean, that's just <laughs> kind of how it goes. And so, just keeping it real, just keeping it real. And so, and so he comes, and he's got this big entourage, because it takes quite a few people to carry that kind of an offering. Comes to Elisha's house. And Elisha doesn't even come to the door. Now, it's not because he doesn't know there's a big commotion going on, because he's got to know that. But he doesn't even come to the door. He sends his servant. His servant says, here's what Elisha says. You go down and you dip in the Jordan River seven times and you'll be healed. Which makes Naaman mad. Because Naaman has a preconceived idea about what God's going to do. He thinks he's going to do a Benny Hinn. You know, he's going to kind of blow on him or wave or, you know, there are going to be people falling out and all that. And that's what he wants. He wants something spectacular. And he says to his guys, he says, if I'm going to go dip in a river, there are better rivers where I come from. The Jordan is a muddy, dirty river. And his guys say to him, listen, man, if he would have asked you to do something hard, would you have done it? Sure. Well, let's just do this. This is an easy one. Let's go do it. So they go and they do it. And he dips seven times and he's healed. And so he comes back to Elisha. Now he's going to give him the gift. He's just really excited. This time Elisha comes to the door. And Elisha says, nope, not going to take any of your money. Four million dollars. I'm not going to take any of your money. And he blesses him and he says, go and be with God. This is where the story gets interesting. And I want to look at it. Uh, in your Bible, you can find it in uh, 2 Kings uh, chapter 5. And um, I'm not sure what verse it is, but it's in your outline sheet. You can take a look at that. Um, it says this. But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, says to himself, my master should not have let this Aramean get away. Now, let, let me stop just a minute. He said to himself, circle he said to himself. We're going to come back to that a little bit later, okay? Circle that. Just kind of put a star around it. Circle it. My master should not have let this Aramean get away without accepting any of his gifts. As surely as the Lord lives, I will chase after him, and I'm going to get something from him. Now, here's where things change. Elisha is all about serving this guy. God has a plan for his life. I don't know what the plan for his life is. I'm not supposed to take the money right now. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But I'm just going to serve him. And Gehazi says, no, I'm going to get something from him. This is where greed begins. See, Gehazi has one of those got-to-have-it moments. I've got to have some of that bling. And what happens is 
is that greed begins to consume him. Because that's the first thing that greed does. It begins to consume you. He looks at the bling. He says, I've got to have some of that. Have you ever had one of those I've got to have it moments? Got to have it. I just got to have that. See, greed can begin to consume you. Um, Proverbs 27, verse 20 says, Just as death and destruction are never satisfied, so human desire is never satisfied. You got, there's something in your way. You can't get it out. Can't get it out. Can't, gotta have it. Gotta have it. Gotta have it. Gotta have it. Could be greed. Could be greed. It's important that we understand that. We're going to get into it, some of the consequences of it. So let's see what happens to Gehazi. So Gehazi set off after Naaman. And when Naaman saw Gehazi running after him, he climbed down from his chariot and went to meet him. Is everything all right? Naaman asked. Yes, Gehazi said. But my master has just sent me to tell you that two young prophets from the hill country of Ephraim have just arrived, and he would like 75 pounds of silver and two sets of clothing uh, to give to them. Greed has consumed him. Now, greed is causing him and actually opens the door for him to do things that he said he'd never do. That's what greed does. He begins to lie. He begins to lie. He wants something, and I feel like I'm going to begin to sneeze, but that's all right. He wants something, and it consumes him, and now he's lying. There, there are no two prophets coming. <laughs> I gave you a warning. How have you loved pollen? Not me. And so, and so he begins to lie. You know, that can happen to you. A friend can ask you a question about something that you're thinking about buying or investing in or whatever. The thing wouldn't be that bad. But for some reason, you begin to lie about it. You're afraid maybe that they're going to take it or that they'd have a bad feeling about that whole thing. And when that happens, it very well could be greed because that's what greed does. Let's go on. By all means, take twice as much silver, Naaman insisted. He gave him two sets of clothing, tied up the money in two bags, sent two of his servants to carry the gifts for Gehazi. But when they arrived at the citadel, it wasn't the one here in Charleston. It was, they apparently had one over in their area. Gehazi took the gifts from the servants and said, sent the men back, and then he went and he hid the get, gifts inside of his house. Greed consumes you. Greed can make you do things that you wouldn't normally do, lie, be deceptive. Greed will also cause you to hide things, hide things, see. Why? Because nobody wants to admit being greedy. I mean, in your small group this week, they might have had a prayer time, said, do you have any prayer requests? I'll bet nobody said, could you pray for me? I'm greedy. You just don't do that. You do cool prayer requests. Could you pray for me? I'm kind of a workaholic. I'm working too much. Everybody goes, oh, that's cool. That's cool. We'll pray for that. And you look good, you know. But you just don't say, hey, pray for me. I want a lot of money. There's some, uh, there's some I've seen this week that I am so consumed by that I'd be willing to sacrifice my family for. Could you pray for me? We don't do that. We hide. We hide. Or you, you might be greedy if you're hiding something from your spouse or your friends, because that's what greed does. Greed hides. Then he went to his master. Let's go on. Elisha. And Elisha asked him, where have you been, Gehazi? I haven't been anywhere, he replied. Really? So what happens now? Greed's consumed him. It's caused him to do something that he wouldn't normally do, lie. He's hiding stuff, and now greed is separating friendships. Have you ever seen that happen? Maybe it happens like this. You have 
two friends, three friends, whatever. They decide they're going to go in business together. They're so excited about it. They've got this vision for it. They're going, you know, I've always wanted to work with you. You know, this is so cool. This is the neatest thing in the world. They go home, they tell their spouse, whatever they have, a spouse or friends, say, we're going to get to work together. This is going to be so awesome. We're going to split everything up evenly. And then you start making money. And then what happens? Somebody puts on the me goggles. Have you ever seen me goggles? I happen to have a pair right here. You see them? Look at that. Me. Does it say me? Well, it says, no, it doesn't say me. Well, it does from my side. See, from here it says me. Watch this. This is cool. Me. So here's what I did. Me goggles. I put these on, and uh, somebody's saying right now, Margaret, we just, we brought our neighbors, and our pastor is wearing some goggles. I'm going to preach with these for a little while. So, so, so I, what I did is I, I did an experiment. I went into the bathroom. I want to see what I look like, you know. So, so I went to a mirror and I took a picture. I've got a picture of that right here. <laughs> now look at this. Look at this quickly. That's a, see Nikon? Nikon spelled backwards because that's what it looks like in a mirror. But me is spelled right, right? Can you see me? Why? Because when you look in the mirror and you have me goggles on, everything looks fine. Everything looks fine. And so here's what happens. So, so you start a band. I had a band when I was a kid. And uh, we're all excited it's about the music, and we're going to play the music. We're going to get a play together, and chicks dig guitar players and all this kind of stuff. And this is going to be so cool until we started making money. And when we started making money, the me goggles came on, and it divided friendships. Or, or maybe it happens. Maybe Have you ever seen this happen? When a relative dies, and they leave more money than you thought that they did, and everything's cool until you start dividing it up, and then everybody goes, me, 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 and they've got the me goggles on. And the me goggles are kind of have this greed tint to it. And you can't see it, but everybody else can because you look absolutely ridiculous when you wear me goggles. How many of you would agree with that? So I'll take them off. <laughs> greed separates friendships. So Elisha asked him, don't you realize that I was there in spirit when Naaman stepped down from his chariot to meet you? How would you like to have a friend like that? That's creepy. I mean, when we say things like, I was there in spirit, you know, that's when you don't go to the small group or you, you know, you don't want to go to the concert or whatever it is, and you go, I'll just be there in spirit. You're lying. You don't want to be there, but that's just something to say. I'll be there in spirit. Elisha was actually there in spirit. He said, I saw you. I saw when he stepped down from his horses. I saw when the whole thing happened. And then he says, is this the time? Circle, is this the time? So we're going to come back to that later, too. He said to himself, we already circled that, is this the time? Circle that, because we're going to come back to it and tie it all together with that. Is this the time to receive money and clothing and olive groves and vineyards and sheep and cattle and male and female servants? Apparently the answer to that was no. He said, is this the time? So here's what happens. Because you've done this, you and your servants, or you and your descendants, will suffer from Naaman's leprosy forever. And when Gehazi left the room, he was covered with leprosy. His skin was as white as snow. Here's what greed does. Greed consumes you. Greed causes you to do things you wouldn't normally do, deceive people. Greed causes you to hide stuff. Greed separates friendships, and greed will ruin your life. It absolutely ruined his life. But here's the bad thing. It didn't just ruin his life. It ruined his descendants' life because greed is contagious. Greed is caught, not taught. If you're a greedy person and greed begins to consume you, your kids will see it 
And oftentimes, the same thing will happen to them. And ultimately, it will destroy generations. I've seen that. It will destroy generations. That's why, that's why Jesus warned us against greed. In fact, he had a, a very strong, uh, very strong warning in Luke chapter 12 and verse 14. He says, watch out. In fact, let's read this one out loud together because I tricked you. This is about you. It's not about your friends. Okay? And we need to watch out. So let's read it. Out loud on the campuses. Read Luke 12 and verse 14. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Be on your guard, Jesus says. Because if you're not, if you're not, this will happen to you. Greed will consume you. It will start small at first. It will consume you. And then you'll start doing things, being deceptive. And then you'll start hiding things. And then it'll separate friendships. And ultimately, it will ruin your life. It's an awful, terrible disease. And all of us are susceptible to it. Most of us are infected at some point right now today in this place. And I want to give you a cure. Jesus says, guard yourself against what? Against all kinds. Underline all kinds of greed. Well, what kind of greed are there? There are many kinds. There's greed for stuff we want. Greed for stuff we want. That's the easiest one uh, to kind of understand. We all know that. How much trouble has the phrase, I want it, and I want it now, gotten you into in your life? That's greed for stuff we want. Jesus said, be on guard against that. Is wanting things wrong? Is wanting more money wrong? Is wanting a relationship wrong? Is wanting a better job wrong? Is wanting better things for your kids wrong? No, unless... It becomes something that becomes a substitute when something good becomes your God. And when, when does that happen? When, when you say things like, or you feel things like, my life would be better if I had more money. I would feel better. I would be happier. I would be, you fill in the blank. When that happens, then the good things have become God things and they're idols. See, God says you're not to have any other idols in your life. Nothing before you. In fact, the Old Testament's full of that. Jesus teaches about that. Well, what is idolatry? Idolatry is when you find your identity, when you find your joy, when you find your reason for being in anything other than God. He says, I'm it. And when you find your reason for being, when you find your joy, when you find your identity in money, in relationship, in things, Jesus says life isn't, the, life isn't the sum total of your possessions. And when you do that, then greed becomes a part of your life, and greed will destroy you, and it will destroy your family. See, when you elevate good things to God's status. I, um, I went to India several times a few years ago to teach. And in any city in India that you go through, city or village, you can go to a place where there are temples. And the temples, I'd walk into a temple every once in a while, and there were just gods everywhere. They, had, they have over 5,000 gods in India. And I thought, well, this is, what, this is what the Bible's talking about when it says that you, you shouldn't have idols and you shouldn't worship other gods. That's what they do in India. We don't do that in America, right? Our temples are different. We have the Temple of Belks. And the Temple of Best Buy. And the Temple of Banana Republic. They all start with B. <laughs> and the Temple of, um, 
Oh, I wrote one down. Oh, Bass Pro. Yeah. And we go in. And we worship other gods in these temples. Are they good things? Yeah, they can be. But we've elevated them to God status because we spend money that we don't have. We long for We feel like that our lives would be better as a result. You know what that is? That's idolatry. It will be judged, and it's greed. And so when you have one of those I've-got-to-have-it moments, Jesus says, be on guard. Greed's around the corner. Then there's stuff we have. Stuff we want, stuff we have. Do you know you can be greedy with the stuff that you have? Greed can turn the stuff that we have into an idol. What happens is we confuse ownership and stewardship. We say things like this. We say things like this. I work hard for what I have. I'm going to use it how I want to. Really. The Bible says that everything that you have is a gift from God. Every good and perfect thing comes down from the God of lights, the Father above. Everything that you have is a gift from God. That's called stewardship. You manage it for his glory. God gives you everything. You manage it for his glory. It's not yours, it's his. And let me tell you, when there's an ownership crisis is when God asks you to give some of it away. Um, maybe it's a car. I'm not talking about old beaters. We do that all the time. Hey, can the church use an old beater? Sure we can. Bring your old beaters. We repurpose them. It's great. Keep doing that. But what about if God says something new, something nice? Hey, you just bought that. I want to use it somewhere else. Would you, would you kindly give it to so-and-so? <laughs> that can't be God. He wouldn't do that, would he? Yes, he would. Or when he says, I want you to take at least 10% of your income, and I want you to give it in an offering box every week. <gasps> is that you, God? Yes, it is. It is a test of stewardship versus ownership. God says, you're to be a steward. I'm the owner. And when I ask you to give away what's mine anyway, it's a test of greed. Because if you won't do it and don't do it, you're greedy. You're greedy. That's what God says. And Jesus says, guard yourself against greed because of all of the consequences. It will consume you. It will cause you to do things you wouldn't normally do. It will cause you to hide stuff. It will de destroy friendships. And ultimately, it will destroy your life. You don't want to be any part of that. So Jesus says, guard against that. Stuff you want, stuff you have. There's a third category of greed, stuff that you're afraid to lose. Stuff that you're afraid to lose. Greed is rooted in fear. Gehazi is afraid that he won't have enough. There's a famine going on. What is Elisha thinking? This must be God bringing $4 million our way. And uh, Elisha says, now isn't the time. I think it's the time. I'm afraid. Let me get a little piece of that. See, and we can be that way. We can be afraid that we're not going to have enough. So what do we do? We hoard. We call it good planning. Good planning is important, but good planning is different than hoarding because hoarding is built in fear. I'm not going to have enough. It won't last. It won't be there. We even do it for our family. We, we talk about it's for my family. I put family first, but family first can even be a greed thing when we do it in fear, in fear that God won't supply. Jesus says, be on guard because greed is devastating. And greed has infected every one of us in this place. So how do you guard against greed? I'm glad you asked. 
I have some answers. Let me give you the first one. Learn contentment. Learn contentment. Someone said that love is blind and greed is insatiable. Can you say insatiable together? Insatiable. What does that mean? Definition of insatiable. Incapable of being satisfied or appeased. It's never enough. I remember reading an interview with John D. Rockefeller, who was, you know, like the Warren Buffett of, of his times. He was the richest man in America. And somebody asked him, how much money do you need? How much is enough? You know what his answer was? Just a little bit more. You know what that is? Insane. Insane. Did you know that, that uh, um, secular psychology defines sanity? Part of sanity is the ability to be satiated. Okay? In other words, the ability to be filled. Enough is enough. You can pull back from the table. Insanity is the inability to be satiated. It's what insanity is. It says, I can't, just a little bit more, just a little bit more. Greed is a form of insanity. Contentment is a pillar of sanity. Paul said, Philippians 4.11, I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. Have you learned that or are you still insane? I have a friend who lost everything because of some choices that he made. I was talking to him the other day. He's doing great. I said, what are you learning? He said, I'm learning to be content. He was insane before. Very popular. One of his deals was always have to do something. Got to go somewhere, speak somewhere, got to do something. Text, 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 text. It, I would be at meetings with him and he was never present. We'd have lunch together, and he's always doing this. Yeah? Doing this. 600 texts a day. Yeah? Doing this. The other day he said, you know what? On a Saturday I, I got six texts. He said it was wonderful. I'm learning to be content. Contentment is sanity. Discontentment, insatiable, is insane. I love the story of Marcinius. I've told it before. He was a 5th century Christian that lived in Egypt. And he was fed up with the distractions of the materialistic world. And so he decided to live in a desert. And he lived there for a while until finally he felt like he'd re rediscovered his love and dependence on God. So he comes back into the city and he goes into the marketplace where there, all these things are being sold. And he wrote this down. He said, my heart leapt with joy within me with all of the things that I saw but did not need. Is that what you said last time you went to Banana Republic? To the mall? To Lowe's? My heart leapt within me when I saw all the things that I did not need. That's contentment. You've got to work on that. In fact, I'd like to give you an assignment. I'd love for you to go shopping today or tomorrow. And don't buy anything. Don't buy anything. Just walk around and go, oh, my heart's leaping within me with all of the things that I see but do not need. Contentment, contentment will keep you from greed. Guard yourself, guard your heart. Here's the second one. Second one is uh, to practice or, or to pursue community. Pursue 
community. Uh, remember when Gehazi said to himself, did you circle that? Gehazi said to himself, what did he say to himself? Well, I'm going to go get some bling. He had no idea what that bling would bring. He had no idea that it would lead to hiding and deception and consumption and breaking off friendships and ultimately ruin his life and his kids and his grandkids. He didn't know that. How do you believe that if Gehazi could have run this idea past somebody else, he might not have done it? Have you ever had something happen in your life? How many of you have done something? And you feel like, you know, if only I would have talked to someone else, <laughs> I probably wouldn't have done it. See, instead, we put on the me goggles. And we see life through a greed filter. And we look ridiculous in the end. Um, one of my favorite verses in the Bible is Ecclesiastes 4 and verse 9. It says this, two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. You know, I'm a part of several small groups. I have a small group of three of us here, uh, three men here in this, this church that meets very consistently. I have a small group of, that I met with just a couple of weeks ago, about five or six guys who have churches similar to this. And, and, I, and I always say this, I say that everybody needs to sit at least one table with a group of people who love you but are not impressed with you. Because if you're around people that are impressed with you all the time, then you'll start believing the press, okay? And you need, you need to sit at a table, and, I, and I, I sit at a table with a group of men who love me but they're not impressed with me, and the sole focus of the group is to help each other succeed. That's what two people can do better than one because they can help each other succeed. Now, sometimes success is just about not doing something stupid. Are there any testimonies to that? And we run things by each other. Hey, this is what I'm thinking. Dude, that sounds like me goggles to me. That's not going to end well for you. You're served well when someone does that. And hopefully you're learning that just a little bit in your groups. I know that with a new small group, it takes a while for real community to happen. You know, first you get together and you exchange, you know, information, which is great. I love it. This is where I'm from. This is how I grew up. This is my stories. You exchange stories. And then you have curriculum, and we have curriculum for you that helps you. And you answer questions. But hopefully it goes beyond that. It gets to a point where you're running things by one another. Hey, this is what I'm thinking. And the trust comes. And when you pursue community, oftentimes you can guard against greed. Because if you're hiding something and you don't want somebody to know about a financial decision, especially that you're trying to make, I can almost guarantee you that there's greed involved. Because greed hides. Truth comes out in light. And so, and so find community. Let me, let me do one thing with you. In your bulletin, you, there was a, a little thing like this that says make room on it. Everybody put one of these in your fingers. Put one between your fingers like this. Pinch it real tight. Okay, right here. Everybody have one? Okay, I want us to do this together. Get a pen. Do you have a pen or a pencil? If you don't have one, ask the person next to you. It could lead to a date. Okay, so get a, get a pen or a pencil. We're going to do this together right now. Okay, here's what I want you to do. It has three questions at the top. Let's see if we can get them right. First name, how do you know that? Okay, first name. Not mine, yours. First name. Got it? <laughs> write it down. Write it down real quick. Spell it right. Write it down. Write it down. Last name. Do that. Last name. Write that one. Email address. Ooh, I don't want to give you my email. You might spam me. 
or sell it to somebody else. We won't sell it to somebody else. We won't spam you. I want to give you some information. There's some, some stuff I want, to, I, I want to help you with in this area of community. Okay? So that's why I want that. Email. And then the next one is, are you involved in a make room group? Yes or no? Just be honest. If you're not, it's okay. Just want to know. All right. Then the last one is, name of your make room host. Okay? Who, who invited you? Who's kind of convening the group? Okay? That's all I want to know. A little bit later, your campus pastor will tell you what to do with that, okay? All right, so if you're going to guard against greed, then you need to uh, learn contentment. You need to pursue community. And let me give you one more. This is a big one. This is huge in this. This is probably the most important one. If there is importance, this will be number one. And that's this, practice generosity. Practice generosity. To protect yourself against greed, you're going to need to make room for generosity. Here's a great scripture in Isaiah 32 and verse 8. I want us to read it out loud together. Generous people plan to do what is generous, and they stand firm in their generosity. Now, let me break that down. It's so good. Generous people plan to be generous. Generous people plan to be generous. If you fail to plan, you plan to... Okay, that's good. About 30% of you got it. Let's do it again. If you fail to plan... Well, no, if you plan to fail, fail to plan, you plan to what? Fail. That's it. I can't remember. Whatever. That's true of anything. It's true of generosity. If you don't plan your generosity, you will not be generous. If your generosity is just a quiver in your liver when somebody says something cool, <gasps> we're going to give to that. Yeah, let's do it. That's a cause. I love that cause. Let's do it. I feel good. I'm glad I'm here. Wow, I didn't want to come, but I'm glad I'm here. Let's write a check. At the end of the year, if that's how you're generous, at the end of the year, if you add up your generosity, I will guarantee you it will not reflect generosity in the overall plan. Because generous people plan their generosity. I want to challenge you to do that. Let me, give you, let me give you three ideas on that. Number one, plan your giving to the church. Debbie and I do that. We plan to be generous to Seacoast. I set out at the beginning of the year a plan. I told you guys to do it. I'm doing the same thing. A goal for giving, which was a big stretch goal for giving. Now, not all of it's going to go to Seacoast, but at least 10% does because that's not part of the stretch. That's just honoring God. That's just going, okay, God, I recognize that you are the owner. I am the steward. You allow me to live on the rest of it. I am grateful for that. So I am going to give you the first 10% of everything. And so the very first 10% of everything that we get goes right in those offering boxes. Okay? We don't even do it online. We should, but we're not up, up to speed yet. We do it in the offering boxes. First 10%. And, uh, and so I know that there's going to be, why? Because it, 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 I recognize God's, I recognize my propensity toward greed, number one. And that's one of the antidotes. I say, God, you're the owner. And this church, when I do that, this church provides for ministry all across every one of these campuses and all around the world. At-risk kids are mentored because of the money that goes into those offering boxes. Hospitals are built in third world countries that are phenomenal because of the money that goes in those offering boxes. Churches are started. A hundred churches will be started this year 
that thousands of people will come to Christ over the history of those churches. And it multiplies because of dollars that go in those offering boxes. On and on and on and on and on and on and on. I could just recite all kinds of things, and we talked about some of them. And so I do that because I want to be a part of that. And I also want to recognize God's ownership. Second way you plan to be generous is plan on how you're going to give to the poor. In the Old Testament, uh, we've talked about that before, where a landowner would um, come time for harvest, and the law was he could only sweep through one time, and so there would be things that would be left for the poor. And I'm sure a rich landowner would look at every bit that was left there and go, boy, that would increase the income. But God is saying, no, I don't want you to be greedy. I want you to be generous. And this is a way to plan your generosity is you're only going to sweep once. And so the, those that are less fortunate can come and get things. What are you doing for the poor? Now, part of what you give in that offering box goes to the poor. But then above that, what are you doing? I know people that set aside a percentage of their income, or they say, God, here's a trust. If they have a little bit more money, here's a trust. And as that grows, I will give that to the poor. But what are you doing to the poor? Planned generosity. Planned generosity. And uh, then the third thing, it has to do with my being generous in my acts of service. And that, that's planning to serve. That's also spontaneous things. Do you remember when we had that series, 100,000 Gifts, and we were all just, we wake up in the morning and we go, okay, I got to do 10 this week. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? And pl- Lord, help me, help me, help me. Well, you're probably not so intentional about it right now, so you're probably not doing as much, right? So what if you just planned? You said, okay, God, today I'm going to at least bless two people. And so I plan generosity because it says that generous people plan generosity. Let, let, let me give you the rest of that verse. And it says what? It says they stand firm in their generosity. What does that mean? That means there will be times when your generosity will be tested. You need to stand firm. Let me give you at least two of those. When you don't have enough. When you don't have enough. When there are seasons of famine, that's when we put the me goggles on. And we only think about us. And yet, and yet, over and over and over, you, you know, you read the New Testament, you see this little lady who didn't have anything, who gave, and that was the example that Jesus gave for his disciples for giving. When there's not enough, that's when God tests our faith. Let me tell you, a bigger test of our faith is this, when there's too much. When there's too much. When a relative dies and you get more money than what you thought you would. When there's a windfall of, a, of an investment. When there's a bonus at work and those, those numbers are big and then you start to think, okay, I had planned on being this generous and I said I'd do it with anything that came in. <gasps> that's a lot of money. Honey, let's keep a little bit of that. No, that's when generous people who plan for generosity, they are steadfast. In their, does that make sense? I know this isn't applying to anybody in the room, but you've got friends that are greedy. You've got friends that are greedy. And so I want you to understand that. Plan for generosity. Nobody ever comes up to me after a message like this and goes, oh, great sermon, Greg, I love that. Would you preach more on that stuff? No, but we need it, okay? So, so let's close it like this. Elisha was generous. Gehazi was greedy. Elisha was generous. Gehazi was greedy. Why? Here's what's important. Well, let me ask this question. Why did Elisha say, now's not the time? Now's not the time. Because it was okay for Elisha to receive a gift. I mean, God's all for blessing you, prospering you. You know, if it's good for your soul, he's all for that. He's all for that. 
Uh, so so why, why couldn't Elisha receive like this gift from this king? He didn't do anything bad. I don't know, but I kind of know. I kind of, it's like, it's like God oftentimes will bring people into your life or he'll ask you to give in certain ways because he has a plan for them. And maybe it was this. Maybe it was that Naaman, being a wealthy guy, was used to having people around him like Gehazi that want to get something from him. And maybe God wanted to use Elisha as somebody who could step away from the table because greed didn't govern him. He could look $4 million in the eye and go, oh, God will provide, if it's not here, he'll provide somewhere else. Because God wanted to do something in the servant. God wanted to do something in the, or in, in the commander, maybe even in the king. And maybe it's something way beyond, way beyond what Elisha could ever have thought of. But the ultimate thing is that God is God. And so, and so he's able to use somebody in powerful ways who don't, that, who that greed does not have a grip on their soul. I want to be somebody like that. I want to be somebody that God can use in big ways that maybe even it's not until I get to heaven that God goes, you know what, you know why I wanted you to give that? Or you know why I wanted you to step away from the table on that? Let me show you what happened. It's bigger than anything that you could ever imagine. What about you? Are you generous like Elisha or are you greedy like Gehazi? That's a tough question. That's one I hope that we all wrestle with today and I hope that we, we, we are honest with God. Are you insatiable for anything other than God? You've got to have something, whether it's sex, possessions, status, money, whatever it happens to be, you've got to have it to make you happy. How often do you wear the me goggles? Can I say this? It'll consume you. It'll cause you to be deceptive, to hide. It'll destroy friendships. And ultimately, it'll ruin your life and that of your kids and your grandkids unless you deal with it. And so I want to challenge everybody in this room because we're all touched by greed. I want to challenge you to surrender it to Jesus today. I grew up in a church that used to sing that song, I'll Surrender All, or I Surrender All, something, I don't know. It was a song about surrender. How many of you, how many of you grew up in a church like that? In, in our church, they used it in an altar call, so if nobody came, they'd sing it a thousand times. Until <laughs> finally I'd go down, you know, just to get the song done. You know. It's a great song, I Surrender All, All to Jesus. I surrender. That's the antidote to greed. And I want to challenge you, wherever you are today, I want you, I want you just, in fact, bow with me right now. Would you do that? Bow with me. And I want to pray for you. God, I thank you for this wonderful group of people that I love. I love being a pastor here. I love sharing the gospel and the good news in your word. And today we, we come to a subject that has a grip on each one of us inside. We want it and we want it now. We want to protect our things, and we're afraid of losing things. And God, I don't want to live like that. And I know these people don't. And so right now, just, just in your own way as I pray, would you just pray with me? God, I surrender all to you right now. God, I don't want to live my life with even a hint of greed. God, would you help me to learn to be content? God, would you help me to pursue relationships that will make me successful? 
And God, would you help me to be generous and to practice generosity, to have a plan for generosity, and then to stick with the plan to be generous. God, I want to, I want, I want to be a blessing to you. And I want to glorify you. God, I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.